Hello, this is Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. We come to you from our broadcast studio at CJUM in Winnipeg, and we welcome listeners tuning into our show online or from our affiliated campus and community radio stations across Canada. On today's show, with Parliament having resumed and the Conservatives set to introduce its budget in a few weeks, Alert will examine concerns about the government's agenda in three major areas. We'll hear from York University professor Pat Armstrong about the New Deal for financing healthcare. We'll hear from policy expert Andrew Jackson about the government's plans for pension reform. And writer Martin Lukash will disclose details about the government's pro-tar sands lobbying efforts. First, here are the alert headlines for the week of February 2nd, 2012. Prime Minister's office has been accused of threatening the charity, Tides Canada, for funding a group that opposes the Northern Gateway Pipeline. In an affidavit, a former employee of Forest Ethics says his then-CEO told him that a PMO official referred to the environmental group as an, quote, enemy of the state. Forest Ethics recently worked to motivate people to participate in the National Energy Board review for the Northern Gateway Pipeline and has encouraged U.S. companies to avoid using oil sands-derived fuel. The PMO denies the allegations. Environmental groups fighting the Northern Gateway Pipeline are boasting increased donations thanks to Natural Resources Minister Joe Oliver. Last month, Oliver, in an open letter said radical environmentalists are trying to hijack the regulatory hearings on the pipeline. The BC-based Dogwood Initiative said they have received $12,000 in unsolicited donations, with thanks to Joe Oliver written in the memo lines of some checks. Workers at the diesel plant in London, Ontario, are entering their second month of a lockout exercised by the plant's owner, Caterpillar Inc., Local 27 members of the Canadian Auto Workers Union were locked out on New Year's Day. The 465 CAW members in London, Ontario, voted by 97% on December 30th for strike action. 24 hours later, just as they were returning to jobs on New Year's Eve following a holiday shutdown, they were locked out. Plant workers rejected an offer that would have cut wages to less than half, eliminated a pension plan, and cut other benefits in half. A skilled worker making $35 an hour would, under this new proposal, receive $16.50 an hour. The current minimum wage in Ontario for 2011 is $10.25 per hour. The showdown with Caterpillar, known for its willingness to fight organized labor, comes when Canadian unions are on the defensive. Union representation in the private sector is down to 18%, according to Statistics Canada. The Canadian auto workers and the communications, energy and paper workers are formally discussing a merger to create a stronger union. In a paper released by the two unions, they note the need for a new kind of Canadian unionism in order to respond to the harsh economic and anti-union environment in the country, to be more effective at the bargaining table and to restore the value of unions in Canadian consciousness. If both agree to merge, a new organization would be formed by mid-2013. A legal declaration opposing the Northern Gateway Pipeline has gained the support of more than 100 First Nations groups in B.C., Alberta, and the Northwest Territories. 
The Save the Fraser Declaration underscores the centrality of water to life and aims to protect the Fraser River watershed from the threats of tar sands projects like the Northern Gateway Pipeline. This legal declaration denounces the federal process to approve the pipeline, saying it is in violation of the laws, traditions, values, and inherent rights of Indigenous peoples under international law. The declaration was created in 2010 through the efforts of the Yinka Dene Alliance, which is composed of six nations in northern BC. The Ottawa Piscat First Nation in Ontario filed an injunction this week to remove the Harper-appointed third-party manager and restore control of the community finances to Chief Teresa Spence. The First Nation argues that the third-party manager was appointed by government for irrelevant and extraneous reasons and without prior consultations or dialogue despite the First Nation's many attempts with Aboriginal Affairs and Northern Development Canada. Chief Spence also filed an affidavit comparing the imposing appointment of a third-party manager to her experience in residential school. The New York Times reports that an Israeli condition to a two-state solution would necessarily include redrawing the borders as to incorporate all existing settlements as part of Israel. The Palestinian negotiators at the meeting refused this offer, saying, quote, if you put it in perspective, it is as if the West Bank were not occupied, just disputed, with both sides having legitimate claims, while the rest of Israel remains outside the dispute, unquote. The anonymous Palestinian also told the New York Times, quote, Our starting point is the 1967 borders with minor swaps, and theirs is the wall and settlements, unquote. All countries in the European Union except Britain and the Czech Republic agreed on Monday to sign a new treaty designed to stop overspending in the Eurozone and put an end to the bloc's crippling debt crisis. Europe's debt crisis has put the continent's leaders in an almost impossible situation. While they have to slash deficits to reassure the financial market and investors reluctant to lend to them, austerity measures cause unemployment to soar. Many analysts, politicians, and trade unions think that only more government spending can avoid recession and restart growth. Those are the alert headlines for the week of February 2, 2012. Now for Around the Left for the week of February 2, 2012. The McGuinty government is planning painful cuts to health care, education, and social services. Under these mounting attacks, the Ontario Public Service Employees Union, OPSEU, approached a national advocacy group called the Public Services Foundation of Canada to hold a commission on quality public services and tax fairness. The PSFC and OPSEU will hold province-wide hearings and town hall forums and citizens of Ontario are encouraged to make submissions. A town hall in Owen Sound will take place February 7th from 1 o'clock to 3.30 p.m. in the Bay Room of the Harry Lumley Bayshore Community Centre with the hearings taking place that evening from 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock p.m. To apply for standing, email Commission Officer Kira Shion at kchion at opseu.org. 
On February 8th, from 6 o'clock to 8.30 p.m., the Aboriginal Women Reclaiming Our Power Project, Moon Voices, of Ganiganichik, Inc., and the Institute for Women's and Gender Studies at the University of Winnipeg, invite you to participate in Moon Voices Share, Indigenous Mothering, Creating a Place of Love for the Next Seven Generations. It will be a sacred space and opportunity for Indigenous women to listen to the stories of other women, share our own stories, and think about the ways in which our roles as mothers, grandmothers, aunties, sisters, and friends help shape our communities. The event will take place in the Bowman Centre and is free and open to all. For more information, contact Kim Hunter at IWGS at uwinnipeg.ca or Shannon Cormier at scormier at ganiganichik.ca. On February 8th from 6 o'clock p.m. to 10 o'clock p.m. in Ottawa, come to the Unlawful Access Legislation Forum, which will examine electronic surveillance laws and how they invade privacy. Taking place in the Amphitheatre of St. Paul University at 223 Main Street, the event will feature the launch of the book, The Internet Tree, The State of Telecom Policy in Canada 3.0. A viewing of a mini-documentary on these issues called Unlawful Access and Panels and Discussions. For additional information on this event and a list of panelists, search for the Facebook event page. On February 10th at 1.30 p.m. in the Verney Room at York University, 4700 Keel Street in Toronto, you are invited to attend a seminar on the failure of capitalist production. Andrew Kleeman, a professor of economics at Pace University in New York, will be speaking about his new book, The Failure of Capitalist Production, Underlying Causes of the Great Recession. Jeffrey McCormack, a PhD student in social and political thought, and John Simulidis, who teaches in business and society, will participate in a discussion. In spite of widespread opposition, Canada's Bill C-10, the Conservative Omnibus Crime Bill, is poised to become law by March 16, 2012, instituting sweeping changes that will produce more crime and more prisoners across the country. WPIRG, the Waterloo Public Interest Research Group, invites you to join them in the 2012 School of Public Interest, which will focus on challenging criminalization, supporting prisoners, and building alternatives. The event will take place February 10th to 12th. For more details, check out WPIRG.org. On February 18th, from 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock p.m. in Winnipeg, Check out a screening of an award-winning film, Myths for Profit, and participate in a panel discussion that will include the director, Amy Miller, as well as Dennis Lewicki of the Social Planning Council of Winnipeg, and Roger Annis of the Canada-Haiti Action Network. Myths for Profit challenges the popular conception that Canada is a global good guy by reviewing our dismal record in international development, national defence policy and peacekeeping. The event will take place in the Carol Shields Auditorium at the Millennium Library in Winnipeg. There is a suggested donation of $5, but no one will be turned away. A unique phenomenon in the U.S. and the world, Left Forum convenes the largest annual conference of a broad spectrum of left and progressive intellectuals, activists, academics, organizations, and the interested public. The conference is held each spring in New York City and will take place this year from March 16th to 18th at Pace University. This year's theme is Occupy the System, Confronting Global Capitalism. For more information, visit www.leftforum.org. 
That's all for Around the Left for the week of February 2nd, 2012. In its recent meeting with provincial premiers and territorial leaders, Prime Minister Harper has initiated change in the funding of health care services across the country. Increases in funding will be linked to economic growth province to province. Is this a responsible move given the current challenges facing the system? To examine this question, we're joined on the line by Pat Armstrong. She is Professor of Women's Studies at York University. So welcome to the show, Pat. Um, Thank you for inviting me. Okay. Could you maybe sum up for, for us uh, why you think uh, Canadians should be concerned about the, the government's new health care funding strategy? Well, I think they should be concerned, first of all, because of the non-democratic way that this was introduced. It's a decision by fiat. It hasn't even gone to Parliament yet. Well, they've just been told, which I find quite shocking for Canada's most loved social program. That's the first thing. I think that uh, Canadians should have an input in terms of what's happening to their health care system at the federal level as well as at the provincial level. That's one thing. The second is that it will increase inequality amongst the provinces because the rich will get richer and the poor will get poorer. And part of the purpose of the Canada Health Act and the federal funding in the first place was to equalize distribution across Canada and ensure that everyone had access to hospitals and doctor care. Would it uh, I think that thirdly, that means it's going to be fragmented across the country that with no kinds of guidelines being offered by the federal government. The argument is made that this will allow all kinds of innovation, but they're not stopped from doing all kinds of innovation now, except that they have to keep the system universal, accessible, comprehensive, and portable, and governed by uh, a nonprofit organization. So uh, within those terms, it's, there are, there's lots of room for experimentation. What there isn't room for is charging people fees for essential services. Uh, but under this new scheme, that may well happen. Hmm. Is it possible that this uh, new arrangement might be at least a little preferable to the uh, the, the, the sweeping deficit-fighting measures invoked by the Cretchen-Martin era, which saw major cuts uh, in transfers for health care, for example? Well, uh, I think that there were problems with the major and sweep sweeping cuts that happened, uh, that when Martin put most of that money back, uh, that we still had... Uh, problems in terms of the federal government enforcing the Canada Health Act, making sure that, for example, uh, there was portability among provinces and that there was n there were no fees charged. And I think that the federal government, in fact, should be moving in the opposite direction from the direction that uh, uh, we're seeing the current government, well, I shouldn't say the current government, we're seeing Mr. Harper move in, <laughs> which, which is to... Um, to not expand a national health program, but in fact uh, fragment it further. We should be moving into developing a national pharmacare program, for example, that could save everyone money if we introduce such a scheme. But instead, we see them backing off in ways that are going to increase costs 
without increasing access. Uh, is there anything about these changes that uh, might might concern people, uh, given that uh, we've signed on to trade agreements like NAFTA, for example? Is there anything, any area in which these agreements might be brought to bear uh, or, or might somehow interface with this agreement to, to uh, in, a, in a, a regressive way uh, yes. in terms of uh, health care? Yes, the answer is yes. I think it's quite worrisome that uh, if the provinces move to further privatize health care services, then I think that uh, arguments will be made by other countries that they have the right to move in and offer those services. And we've already seen that start to happen in, in those areas not covered by the Canada Health Act, like uh, long-term residential care. And we have lots of evidence in that area that it's not beneficial to move to privatize and have international companies move into that area, that chains have lower staffing ratios, poorer outcomes for the people who have care in them. And we could see the same thing happening in terms of uh, all kinds of services in Canada if we uh, go this route. Uh, is it possible? You mentioned this sort of patchwork um, uh, effects on, on the provinces. Are, are there any uh, provinces in particular that uh, might concern you in terms of uh, what this uh, this new pact would uh, accomplish? Well, I think that the poorer provinces, the provinces that aren't uh, making lots of money right now out of their resources, are going to be in trouble trying to meet their health care needs of their populations. And, and provinces like Ontario, for example, that uh, gets more than its share of, of new people coming to Canada, of, of people who... Um, uh, are have health issues and aging populations, for instance, are going to be in trouble if we're not equalizing across the country. Hmm. And, you know, small provinces can't afford to produce the kinds of specialized services that other provinces provide unless they have some kind of support. I know that Prime Minister Harper, before he became uh, went to Parliament, or before he... Uh, went to lead uh, one of the official opposition parties. He was uh, the head of the National Citizens Coalition, which, if I'm not mistaken, had its start uh, by a, uh, a private health insurance uh, salesman who was opposed to our health care system. So I'm, I'm wondering, is it, would you care to speculate on whether the prime minister is in some sort of Trojan horse type way trying to achieve the aims of the National Citizens Coalition uh, through this effort? Well, I don't pretend to know what the, the, his personal motives are. I think that it's pretty clear that we've seen a steady move towards trying to open up uh, the health care system to for-profit uh, speculation and enterprise, uh, and that uh, in the mistaken idea that somehow the private sector offers more choice uh, all it does is offer the choice of the right to buy, which is uh, uh, not a choice at all when it comes to health care. Uh, it doesn't operate more efficiently or more effectively, uh, and I think that we'll all suffer if we go this route. And certainly the actions of this government in other areas suggest that the market is the only thing they seem to have any faith in. Mm. 
And uh, I, I have no reason to think they don't see the same thing uh, in terms of health care. Pat Armstrong, um, you, you mentioned the, the undemocratic nature of this maneuver by the, uh, the government. Do you have any suggestions for how we may be able to uh, reverse the tide, given that uh, the prime minister does lead a majority government? Well, I think that we, it, it's been interesting in, here in Toronto to watch the uh, council move against the mayor who came in, uh, in in very similar ways to the Harper government, promising one thing and doing something uh, quite different. Uh, and we've seen the individual councillors start to rise up against uh, the mayor. And that while it's not a parallel case because we don't have a party system at the municipal level, but at the federal level, I think we have to start to get to individual members of parliament and convince them that uh, we want to keep our Canadian health care system as a, a not-for-profit, universal, accessible system, and that this way of going about change is simply not acceptable and is completely against the wishes of Canadians. Well, Pat Armstrong, I want to thank you for those insights, and, and thank you for sharing them uh, with Alert. You're welcome. And uh, we've been speaking with Pat Armstrong. She's the professor of women's studies at York University. Look for the latest issue of Canadian Dimension on the newsstands. Besides a roundtable discussion on the state of the global economy with economists Jim Stanford, Sam Gindin, and Marjorie Griffin Cohen, this issue of Canadian Dimension features a special focus on the Inuit. We call it Inuit Country. This is a unique collection of articles on a part of Canada seldom heard from. Our next issue examines the fascinating degrowth movement that is taking hold in Europe and North America. Look for it in March. You can obtain these issues on select newsstands or by contacting Canadian Dimension at info at CanadianDimension.com. Stephen Harper's announcement at the gathering of the world's elite in Davos last Thursday that he intends to do to government-funded pensions what he did to health care transfers, namely to limit their growth, caught everybody by surprise. Opposition parties were quick to point out that Harper failed to campaign on this issue during the last federal election that gave him a parliamentary majority. They say he has no mandate to proceed on this sensitive issue. There is also the question of whether Canada's aging population threatens social programs and that raising the retirement age is actually needed to ensure that the program is fiscally sustainable in future years, which is what Harper contends. To discuss these questions, Alert has contacted one of this country's most recognized experts on government retirement policy. Andrew Jackson is a senior researcher at the Canadian Labour Congress, and we've reached him in Ottawa. Welcome to Alert Radio, Andrew. Hi. Can you start off by summarizing for us the position of the Harper government on the pension issue? Well, that's a little obscure. I, I guess basically uh, Harper took a shot at the European welfare state when he was in Davos, and they proceeded to say that there were going to be changes to the, uh, the old age security system. I, I guess if he's worried about increasing costs, he could be talking about... Uh, uh, increase in the tax back of benefits going to high-income earners, but I, I think that's extremely unlikely. And it seems what they're thinking about is raising the age of eligibility for old-age security from 65 to perhaps 67. What would the impact of such changes be on seniors? 
Well, I guess it would be phased in, but I mean, say anybody who's less than, say, about 55 now, it's, uh, it's probably going to mean for everybody they're going to have to, well, they're going to lose out on $12,000, which would be two years of OAS benefits down the road, so every, everybody loses uh, in a certain age group bracket. But the, the biggest impact by far is going to be on low-income seniors because Basically, once you turn 65 and you're eligible for the old age security payments, if you have a low income, then you also become eligible for the guaranteed income supplement to the old age security. And basically what we have in Canada is a kind of minimal guaranteed annual income for people age 65 and over. It kind of runs about $14,000, $15,000 a year. Which might not sound a lot, but uh, for a lot of um, older workers who can only work part-time or who are in health, who are on disability plans, who are on provincial social assistance, moving to 65 gives them a, a big, significant increase in their living standards. And you know that's going to be postponed for two or three years or even longer, likely, under the Harper plan. An article in last Monday's Globe and Mail referenced a study of the pension system by Edward Whitehouse, a study that was commissioned by the Harper government, which found that, to, to quote the study, Canada does not face major challenges of financial sustainability with its public pension schemes, and there is no pressing financial or fiscal need to increase pension ages in the foreseeable future. So if that's the case, then why do you think the Harper government is pushing for reforms to the pension system? Well, frankly, that's a bit of a mystery to me. I mean, there's nothing about the finances of the OAS-GIS program, you know, where that's going over the next 20 years. Uh, That's new. This has been uh, known to anybody who follows these things, you know, in the chief actuary's report for for a long time. And, you know, they, they put the most scary possible numbers on it, but as a share of our total national income spending on old age security, increases by just 0.7 percentage points of GST, of GDP, I should say, between now and 2030 when it peaks. So even the parliamentary budget officer said the other week that this is completely affordable. Uh, So I think basically uh, it reflects ideological hostility towards so-called welfare state programs, and I I guess the subtext to this is the government wants people to work longer, uh, and that that includes uh, low-income seniors. So I guess, uh, you know, McDonald's will be staffed by more 66- or 67-year-olds down the road than they are today. In your opinion, what are some reforms that are really necessary for the public pension system? Well, our, our big concern is that down the road there's a lot of uh, people now in their 40s, 50s who are clearly have inadequate savings for retirement. So they've really been impacted by the, the sharp decline in pension plan coverage in the private sector, which is now down to 25%. So, you know, if you're worried about the incomes of seniors down the road, what we should be doing is expanding the Canada pension plan so that that's going to pay out more to people down the road, you know, for people who are working today. But, you know, what's kind of bizarre about this 
move as everybody recognizes the serious weaknesses in our public pension system as a whole and rather than expand the Canada pension plan they'll sort of look to be taking an axe to the old age security program which is pretty minimalist but it's um, you know it's a basic building block for you know pays out about six thousand dollars a year to everybody age over 65 so you know you get your OAS and your CPP and a bit of pension savings and you know, it might add up to a, at least a minimal standard of living. Well, thank you for speaking with us today. We appreciate your insights on the subject, and we look forward to seeing what happens with this issue um, over the coming months. You're welcome. Thank you. Alert Radio has been speaking with Andrew Jackson, senior researcher at the Canadian Labour Congress, about the public pension system. Prime Minister Stephen Harper has made it explicitly clear that he is billing Canada as an energy superpower and that the Alberta tar sands will be a major component of his economic action plan. Canada has, however, been receiving negative attention domestically and around the world for its tar sands advocacy, especially as it is perceived as the major factor in obstructing meaningful international action on mitigating climate change. How has the government responded to this criticism? Apparently through a heavy-duty lobbying campaign. To tell us more, Alert has reached Martin Lukash. He is a writer and a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. Thank you for joining us, Martin. Sure, thanks for having me. So um, you want to give us a a few more details? What are some of the the major talking points being used by the Harper government in order to uh, make the tar sands seem more appealing? Um, Well, I would say that they're, they're... They're fighting this battle on a few fronts. Uh, I think more, more recently, the the Keith Obama, President Obama's denial of uh, the Keystone XL pipeline has really sent kind of shockwaves through Canadian corporate boardrooms and government hallways. Um, and so they've kind of doubled up on their, as you mentioned, on their you know intent to um, really push through uh, the expansion of the tar sands, uh, the building of pipelines. Um, They've turned, they've turned their attention to uh, Enbridge's Gateway Pipeline, which would basically carry oil, tar sands oil from the tar sands uh, through northern BC to the Pacific Coast, and then for export to uh, the U.S. West Coast and and China. Um, and uh, I guess the talking points or strategies they're using are a are a few. Domestically, um, I guess most recently we've seen some very base kind of propagandistic efforts to, to marginalize environmental protest, uh, taking a page from an autocrat's playbook, they blamed, you know, foreign interests uh, for sowing discontent and protest. Um, they've also blamed so-called radical environmentalists, most of whom, you know, could hardly be called radicals in any, any typical sense of the term that is, you know, questioning basic social and economic organization or society, so capitalism. Um, and um, I guess that one of the reasons they're doing this is they're they're trying to develop cover for um, basically um, dismantling what environmental oversight does exist in this country. Um, so they're going to try to do that through legislation, through regulatory changes, and, and simply by cutting funding to Environment Canada and the Canadian Environmental Assessment Agency. So um, basically containing public involvement. Um, speeding up the process for approval of major industrial projects, which include tar sands mines um, and other projects. Um, so that, that, that's one piece of it. Um, another, I think, that we should pay attention to is um, 
the development of a of a new national energy strategy. Um, and uh, Alberta has kind of been taking the lead on this, working closely with the feds. And I think the idea is to bring in other provinces as a kind of national cover, really, for a plan that's essentially just massively expanding the tar sands. Um, I guess one thing that one, another another thing I think we need to pay close attention to um, is, I guess, government collaboration, co-optation, even with co-optation of some of the bigger mainstream NGOs. So. There was a post-media report just this past weekend that indicates that Pembina and a few other unnamed, you know, organizations are are near releasing some kind of pact or agreement agreement on demands, shared demands with the industry, um, and that will likely involve some kind of, you know, funding demands for funding arrangements around carbon capture and storage, maybe some increased monitoring over water. And I think this is a on the part of ENGOs a totally disastrous strategy. That will essentially give, uh, you know, social license to start to tar sands development, and will undercut the the political gains that are being made by much more confrontational strategies employed by some NGOs, but mostly grassroots and indigenous uh, oppositional organizing. Um, I guess that's what that's what that's what's happening on the domestic front. What I guess about, another thing to <clears throat> What about the European Union? Sure. Um, yeah. So I think the the lo- the loss. The, the what's happened in the states in terms of the denial of Keystone, and then also just the mounting opposition in Europe, uh, which has kind of led to over the last two, three years, four years now, the development of a of a, a green initiative called the called the Fuel Quality Directive. Um, that is essentially a law that the EU has been trying to pass that would give a dirty label to tar sands oil and essentially ban ban its import. Now, Europe doesn't actually import and probably won't import any tar sands oil, but the fear on the part of policymakers in the country and the industry is that this would set precedents elsewhere, um, especially in the States, in Asia. Um, and so the Canadian government has been working very hard to derail this initiative. And what I think is happening now is that they've really started to bulk up this this apparatus of lobbying. Um, um, you know, they do stuff like uh, organize tours for uh, European policymakers. Uh, um, they've they've been working very closely with with what they call like-minded allies, namely oil companies, um, who are you know some of the big European oil companies like Total and Shell are some of the biggest investors in the tar sands. So they're working very closely with them as well um, to protect that investment base. Um, and I guess that for they basically managed to delay this fuel quality directive for about two years now. And they've also more recently won Britain as a key ally to their side and Holland as well. Um, and there's there, there's going to be a final vote actually um, by EU member states in late February um, on this fuel quality directive. I think if Canada is unable to derail it, then it's quite clear that, they're, that Harper will probably... Um, try to challenge us at the the World Trade Organization. Um, uh, Martin, could you say maybe what or or who has been most successful in terms of uh, uh, strategies for for countering that um, uh, lobbying effort? Sure. Um, well, I mean, in Europe, um, a lot of this work has been you know led by impacted communities from Canada. So 
indigenous organizations like the Indigenous Environmental Network, uh, working alongside some environmental organizations like Greenpeace and others. Been very, I've been w- working very closely in Europe, um, lobbying and pushing, um, you know, European policymakers, as well as being a very vocal presence at some of the shareholders' meetings for some of these big oil companies. Um, I think it, domestically, um, I think indigenous opposition is really the key. Um, uh, I think Gateway, the Gateway and Enbridge's Gateway pipeline, in my opinion, is is unlikely uh, unlikely to succeed. I think in large part because of the enormous unity and power that indigenous uh, communities in northern BC have, especially because most of the land in BC is is unseated. And I've spoken with indigenous leaders who, are, who have been really surprised, actually, and but heartened by the unity that's emerged between BC First Nations and also First Nations now in Alberta and Northwest Territories. Um, it's really unprecedented. And I think legally and politically, it amounts to an unbreakable wall of opposition, which was the memorable way that Chief Jackie Thomas of the Inca Dene Alliance put it. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. Um, I think just the the alliances that are, that are developing now increasingly between indigenous uh, communities who are really the front line of this resistance and environmental organizations, citizens groups, and all kinds of other kind of surprising, unlikely alliances between you know local citizens. Um, and municipalities who realize that um, the realize the threat of of spills um, from these pipelines. Well, keeping in mind that the Stephen Harper government it is a majority government, and it seems as if they completely ignore, uh, as you've pointed out, you know, environmentalists have become like radicals and so on. So the people who oppose this would not vote for Harper in any case, and yet he won a majority. I mean, is, is it necessary for him to pay attention to, to all of those different groups uh, in order to secure su- success? Well, I think it's two questions. One, one is that we can split that into two questions. I think that this growing unity will make it impossible for him to push forward with a lot of these um, pipeline projects. Um, I think that both the, the Gateway and also Tinder Morgan's Trans Mountain, which is an existing pipeline structure, but one they're trying to expand in order to bring uh, tar sands oil through uh, Vancouver and then for export beyond. I think those, with these kinds of increasing alliances being made, will become impossible. And that's really frightening the, the oil patch because they realize that these pipelines are basically the arteries, you know? Um, and if they get choked off, it's going to stop the, the dirty... Uh, tar sands hard from beating. Um, so I think I think the reason we're seeing such um, such rhetoric now from the Harbor government is that they're very concerned and they're they're trying to create they're trying to play you know play very divisive politics. But I don't think it's going to work on the on the on the electoral front. I mean it's too it's too early to say. But I think if if there can be a real groundswell of opposition and mobilizing around these environmental issues, they could become something that would would rally even beyond the, the choir and, uh, and I think generate the kind of opposition that we need in order to cut away at those um, at that electoral base that Harper relies on for his very slim majority, but majority nevertheless. Well, that's uh, no doubt a very optimistic analysis for, for critics of the, the Tar Sands project. So thank you for uh, sharing that perspective with us on Alert, Martin. Thanks for having me. And uh, Alert has been speaking with Martin Lukash. He is a writer and a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective.
This is Music is a Weapon. I'm Mitch Podolik, and here is Billy Bragg. Ai Nicaragua, Nicaraguita La flor más linda de mi querer Abonada con la bendita Nicaragua, Sangre de Dirianque Ay, Nicaragua, sos más dulcita que la mielita de Tamaga. Pero ahora que ya sos libre, Nicaragua, yo te quiero mucho más. Pero ahora que ya sos libre, Nicaragua, Yo te quiero mucho más. La lucha continúa. My youngest son came home today. His friends marched with him all the way. The fife and drum beat out the time While in his box of polished pine Like dead meat on a butcher's tree My youngest son came home today His son was a fine young man With a wife, a daughter and two sons And a man he would have lived and died Till by a bullet sanctified Now he's a saint, or so they say they brought their young saint home today An Irish sky looks down and weeps Upon the narrow Belfast streets A children's blood in gutters filled In dreams of glory Price to pay. My youngest son came home today. My youngest son came home today. His friends marched with him all the way. The pipe and drum beat out the while in his box of polished pine Like dead meat on a butcher's tray My youngest son came home today
And this time he's here to stay. That was my youngest son came home today. And before that, Nicaragua, Nicaraguita. One of the things about Billy Bragg is he popped up on the folk scene about 25 years ago, and he was pretty much the first guy in that whole period of time that was interested in singing about politics. So for those of us who were on the left and those of us who were on the left and who liked folk music, this was a magnificent arrival. So here I'm going to give you three songs in a row, and all of them are either anthems or rewritten anthems, and I think you're going to find this most beautiful. Here is Billy Bragg with Blake's Jerusalem. People's flag is deepest red, it's shrouded off the mass of death. And ere the limbs grew stiff and cold, their hearts blood died in every fold. Then raised the scarlet standard high, beneath its folds we'll live and die. Though cowards flinch and traitors sneer, we'll keep the red flag flying here.
Let's wave the bombard and some night fun all our hands in darkest night. It witnessed many a deed and vow, we mustn't change its color now. Raise the scarlet standard high, and if it falls, we'll live and die. No cowards flinch and traitor sneer, we'll keep the red flag flying here. It well recalls the triumphs past, it gives the hope of peace at last. The banner bright, the symbol plain of human right and human gain. Praise the scarlet standard high, beneath its folds we'll never die. No cowards flinch and traitor sneer, we'll keep the red flag flying Exploitation, no sooner taken, they must give. 
International Unites the World in Song. A totally rewritten idea by Billy Bragg. And before that, the red flag to the tune of the white cockade, which is how it was originally written. And before that, Blake's Jerusalem. That's it for this week, folks. I'm Mitch Pollock. Solidarity. That's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you'd like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producers are Michael Welch and Tommy Allen. Alert headlines by Ben Wood. Around the Left by Ashley Titterton. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik with technical production by Andrew Valpe. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine. <laughs>